and welcome to the Startups in the Studio podcast. Today's interview is with Jamie Bailey, my good friend and the founder of Initial State Technologies. Like many of the founders we've had on the podcast, Jamie ended up raising funds from a large number of individual angels, and he actually never raised an institutional round before his company was acquired. Jamie has a very interesting story growing up in rural Kentucky before becoming an engineer at Lexmark. It was not until after school and years working as an engineer did the entrepreneurial bug finally bite, leading Jamie to found Initial State. There are some great takeaways in today's interview, uh, including the usual tips on raising capital from a large number of angels and uh, some things about managing expectations with prospective investors and your your existing investors. Uh, As usual, thanks for listening to the Startups in the Studio podcast. And now more from Jamie Bailey, founder of Initial State Technologies. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startups in the Studio podcast. Today, I'm sitting in another high-tech studio, only not our normal high-tech studio. We're at the WeWork offices in a conference room here with Jamie Bailey, the founder of Initial State Technologies. And I have known Jamie since 2012. He and I were in an accelerator program together at the National Entrepreneur Center, and uh, my investment company in Crowd Capital eventually invested in Jamie's company, Initial State. I've been following, obviously following Jamie for a very long time since he was first getting his business started. And uh, he has a great story about raising money in Nashville. And I'm really excited to have him here. Jamie, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me, Phil. So Jamie, why don't you start us off with a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and did you grow up with an entrepreneurial spirit? So I grew up in rural Kentucky, a town called Glasgow, Kentucky. Um, No, I did not have an entrepreneurial spirit growing up. My uh, parents were both teachers. Uh, the rest of my family, my grandparents were farmers. I wasn't exposed to a whole lot outside of, um, you know, farming and teaching. So I went to college at University of Kentucky. I majored in um, electrical engineering. And then specifically, I got into integrated circuit design, ASIC design. And that was an industry where you always work for the man. You know, you didn't, uh, you didn't start up an ASIC business. You know, those are like uh, $20 million capital expenses. So, uh, I knew I was going to go work for the man, and so no, I didn't have an entre- entrepreneurial bone in the body through college. So yeah, that 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 sort of uh, that was my uh, background growing up, and then I went to work for a company called Lexmark out of uh, out of college, where I did ASIC design for about uh, eleven years. And while you were at Lexmark, I think you remember te- I remember you telling me one. First of all, it was a very entrepreneurial job. You had a lot of free reign and, and resources to create at Lexmark. I think you mentioned that you came up with a couple of ideas that if you had known at the time, like if I had had this entrepreneurial spirit, I could have launched the next you know, AOL or, or whatever it might have been. Tell, tell, us, uh, tell our audience a little bit about those, those ideas. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, so whenever I, uh, whenever I got to college, so this was in uh, 94, the internet really wasn't uh, widely known. Uh, and I, had the, I was in the only dorm that had access to the internet. Um, and so I took a uh, class, it was an honors class, where the teacher wanted to just go through the internet, just learn what the internet was, and, and the big project was how to create a web page. And so uh, we actually set up a web server in 1994 and created a web page as part of this project, and I created uh, one of the first Star Wars fan sites on the internet. It was called Dagobah, and it was a Star Wars art site. And I uh, stood that up and uh, watched the web traffic come, and it was all coming from colleges, you know. Um, but we were getting just hundreds of thousands of hits. And uh, I remember, uh, I was like, how can I grow the site? And uh, there was this, this new internet directory listing 
and I was like, man, if I could get on this thing, this is awesome. And it, it was, uh, the address was yahoo.ikbono.stanford.edu. Uh, and so I emailed the guy who owned it, uh, Jerry Yang, and I said, hey, could you put my site on your on Yahoo? And he was like, yeah, yeah, this is awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'll start a Star Wars uh, uh, section, and I'll put you in there. And then, of course, we just blew up from there. Um, and I, I thought it was so cool, but I, it didn't hit me. Man, you know, there's like businesses around this. You know, I just thought it was really cool that all these people around the world were, were looking at my site. And then uh, when Netscape 2.0 came out, and they had support for animated gifts. I mean, one of the world's or one of the first animated gifts that uh, they featured, and it was an X-wing blowing up a Tie Fighter, you know. And I thought it was amazing. And, um, and what did I do with that? Nothing. I just wanted to design integrated circuits. So that eventually, you know, I got a I got a cease and desist letter from one of the artists, which you know that you kind of know you made it when you know they threatened to take legal action against you. Uh, Asunio Sanda's agent said, "Stop putting my artwork on your site." Um, so I took his stuff down. And uh, I got a nice uh, talking to from the dean of students who, uh, who uh, was not very happy that uh, one of his students got a cease and desist letter. <laughs> but, um, but I didn't do anything with it. So I went to work as an ASIC guy uh, without ever doing anything with that at all. Uh, so that was one opportunity to pass. Another one was uh, I loved playing games in college. I played first-person shooters way too much. And uh, I played a, a game called Unreal Tournament. You know, we had world rankings and uh, and we had all these people wanting to watch uh, matches that were recorded. And we actually built a little plug-in that would stream the, the games live and we could have audiences come in. And we had a couple people that would do play-by-play. And, uh, and we thought, man, this is cool. I've got 5,000 people watching me play this game live. This is awesome. Never thought, man, maybe there's like money in streaming games. Uh, and then, you know, Twitch was acquired by Amazon for however many billion, you know, a few years later. So, uh, so I was dancing around all of these like really awesome new technologies and it never hit me. Like there's opportunity here. And it was because I didn't have that, that mindset that, man, this is new and it's awesome. And if I think it's awesome, maybe, just maybe there's a startup opportunity here. And so that even carried into when I went to work at Lexmark, I had, uh, I kept taking on these little side projects because, you know, fresh out of college, I had unlimited energy, you know, I was like, give me more work, give me more work, you know. And I kept taking on these these really hard side projects that uh, were valuable to the company. And so we fast forward to 2008, I had uh, had this idea and it was a it was my most grand idea. And it was I wanted to actually embed a data acquisition device in every single chip that Lexmark would make going forward. You know, we're talking about millions of printers, right? And, and we're making the ASICs that drive all of those printers. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a data acquisition device in that printer, in those millions of printers, so I can collect all kinds of awesome data. You know, what software's doing, what hardware's doing, what users are doing. So I pitched this, this grand idea to upper management. And it was just like, you know, they just got glass-eyed. You know, you could just hear the frogs singing and the crickets cricket and they're like I have no idea what you're talking about but tell you what do it on your lunch break go for it we'll, we'll see if it if it does anything and so I did I took on basically I became an entrepreneur at that point and man that was hard but uh, I got that project in and uh, I got it across every single product that Lexmark produced from 2008 and beyond and uh, it was awesome and I got all these users and, and, it, and then it hit me around 2011. So three years later, I've got all this use and 
all this development and all this excitement around it. Now it's like, man, there's nothing about printers that's exciting in regards to this invention. I was like, man, I could, I need to do a startup. I need to take this out. And uh, that really in 2011 was the first time it hit me. You know, you talk about, you know, you hear the entrepreneurial itch. Oh yeah, I had it. I mean, and, and, and it was, it was, it wasn't an itch. It was an obsession at that point. And I was, and I thought I had these, these dreams of how I could take this technology out and actually have an impact, not on a company, but on the world. And that was it. That was the end of working for the man. I had to do a startup at that point. Sounds like your experience with the higher-ups at Lexmark maybe foreshadowed your experience with Nashville-based investors. When you, when you would explain your technology, you probably got a couple of kind of glossed-over eyes. Yeah. Um, so when what was the transition like? Uh, you know, you've got this bug now. You're wanting to. You're thinking about leaving Lexmark and starting a company. What was the transition like from that concept to finally quitting your job and starting a company? So that one uh, that was scary. Um, I knew that pretty quickly. I, I got some pretty good advice. Um, I did some cold reach outs to some people like Brad Feld, who's pretty well known. Brad was always gracious to answer some emails and kind of told him what I was doing and. He gave me some really straight-up advice. He said, you're going to have to go all in. Nobody's going to put anything into you unless you're all in. And uh, I took that advice to heart, and that's what I did. Um, so I went, uh, I decided to cash in my 401k, fund the company myself. So I had uh, about $125,000 tucked away in a 401k. So I uh, made my accountant really upset, and I cashed that in. And then um, I decided that I needed to move to a place that had a little bit more capital. I was in Lexington, Kentucky at the time, and the uh, startup ecosystem there was pretty, um, pretty, pretty young, pretty much in its infancy. Nashville was starting to catch a little bit of momentum with the EC, Nashville EC, and the, uh, the stuff that uh, Michael Bertram was starting to lay the foundation for. So I, I ended up moving to Nashville, uprooting the family, and I absolutely went all in. So I didn't collect a paycheck for two years. And then I started pitching uh, initial state, you know, this technology that was integrated circuit IP. You know, you, you talk about glass-eyed looks. Investors, they were like, wow, so you, you're pre-revenue and you're technology and you want to raise money? You know, so that was pretty challenging. And there was also the, I don't know, man, you know, CEOs, they, they have MBAs around here. You know, they're not engineers. I'm not sure that you, you know you have the chops for this. Uh, so that was um, that was interesting. We we had a lot of people tell us there's no way we we're going to raise any money, or I was going to raise any money. But I had a couple of early investors that bit. But the big thing was in 2013, I pivoted away from Silicon IP uh, into building a software as a service business. That pivot was smart. Uh, it was a little closer to what Nashville, Nashville investors started seeing web and software as a service as an opportunity. It uh, was not trivial, but uh, yeah, we were able to pull off an initial seed investment and get going. What, what was the original concept behind initial state? You mentioned it pivoted later to software as a service, and the problem you were solving never really changed. But what, what was the initial concept? And, and tell the audience a little bit about what initial state was. So initial state started out as uh, we're going to put these data acquisition devices in every integrated circuit that's built 
ever from this point forward. So it's going to be in your smartphone. It's going to be in your TV. It's going to be everywhere. So it's going to uh, it's going to allow um, businesses to collect data on things that are going wrong with the product, so that we could do uh, better analysis in the field. So basically, we were hinting at, at the Internet of Things, which started to emerge in 2014. Uh, 2013, 2014. Um, it was also really powerful for development where we could see what was going on inside of our products um, from software to hardware, uh, reduce development costs. So the whole point of Initial State was uh, we're going to let you see what's going on inside of these products with this data acquisition device. So that was the original concept. Now, this is, this is what happened. So I, I ended up uh, staying with a friend of mine who had moved out to Silicon Valley. He was in Menlo Park, and I slept on his couch for a while. And, went around and met with every VC I could. And, and in 2012, uh, early 2013, 99% of all investor dollars were going to mobile and web. And I got a lot of tough love and they said, listen, yeah, great idea, great concept, good momentum. You're not gonna raise a penny because you're not mobile and web. Um, you're, you're just not. Uh, it's gonna be a slog for you and you need a lot of capital. And uh, so the nose hurt, but they were good, That um, was good advice. And um, I remember I was sitting, I decided it was time to come home, leave. I got. I needed to leave Silicon Valley. I was sitting in the airport and I was thinking, all right, you know, I've, I've, I've not got a paycheck for, gosh, eight months. And I'm burning through my money and I know I got to make a huge pivot. And what's that pivot going to be? I was sitting in the airport of San Francisco and, and it hit me. I was like, you know, the piece that's always awesome in these demos is the data piece. And if it's going to be really, really hard to become kind of hardware-centric, we all know hardware is hard, um, and putting uh, intellectual property in integrated circuits is right in that hardware wheelhouse, maybe there's a play in software, all data. So if I can't be the company that collects all the data with a physical data acquisition device, maybe... I could be the company where all that data goes. And I remember that hit me right before I got on the plane to San Francisco. And the whole ride back, I was like, all right, I got to build a software as a service platform. But here was the problem. I didn't know how to build a software as a service platform. <laughs> I knew how to build chips. I had no idea how to do web programming, not that kind of web programming. And uh, I had to create some momentum to get off the ground. So in... Uh, March of 2013, I bought a bunch of books and I basically went into the quote-unquote garage and I learned how to write JavaScript and I learned how to do enough to build an MVP. And uh, from that MVP, after about three months, I started showing it around and I was like, this is what we're going to do. It's all going to be in a web browser. It's going to be awesome. We're going to suck in a ton of data and we're going we're to have all these analytics and visualizations and that's when investors started to get interested right there, that MVP. So you started off as a company that had both really hardware and software. You had the chips that went into really any piece of equipment, and then you had the software that would analyze the data coming out of those chips. Did you make that switch to software only because of the investors, the pressure from the investors, or because it was the right thing to do for your business, or both? Because sometimes entrepreneurs maybe make a decision because investors are telling them to do something which might not be the right decision for the success of the business as a whole. I think in this case, it, it ended up being both. I think it was that the, the investors weren't 
just giving me advice that was selfish advice. They were actually helping me out. And when you're starting up a company, you, you've got to know how to listen. you got to know how to, to – you're going to get advice that's going to pull you in all kinds of different directions. And I learned early on that I needed to listen to this advice and understand it. It didn't mean that I did everything they said. Uh, but I kept hearing a, a theme here, which is there's this is a great idea. There's opportunity here, but it's, it's just not right yet. It's, it's not right. And the thing that they didn't like over and over again was, man, you know, it's going to be really hard to get your stuff in all this hardware. There's a lot of lead time there. And, you know, you're kind of playing in the family jewels of a lot of company. And, and the thing is, is they were right. And they weren't telling me that because they wanted me to go away or they had some sort of nefarious motive. They were genuinely saying, you know, I'm not going to invest in you for this reason and I'm going to tell you why, which is which is great. It, it hurts when you get a no and there's, there's just silence. So I did it because I listened and they helped me understand that there was actually a bigger opportunity awaiting me with this pivot because of scalability and because of opportunity in general. So it, it was... It was a very, very good advice that was helpful for for me and for the investors. And I think, too, some of these investors were the ones that were really interested in, hey, maybe this kid can pull it off. And if, if he can, this becomes really interesting to us. So let's go back to the initial funding of the business. The initial funding of the business came from 401k. Uh, what was that conversation like? You know, you had you were married, you had a kid. What was that conversation like with, with the family? Was, was your wife okay with it? What, what was the dis- led to that decision? So the conversation was hard, um, but you know I think my wife saw there was a fire there that she wasn't going to be able to put out. She knew I was, I was absolutely on a mission. I was determined to do something, and uh, I was going to be miserable if I didn't do it. So she was very supportive of it. Um, I told her I was cashing the 401k and, you know, I said, this is, you know, this is high risk, but it's high reward, but, you know, um, I want to do it. And so it was a pretty, pretty easy conversation. She was just like, all right, then let's do it. But, you know, it was only because it was so much determination was obvious on that one that made that even a possibility for her. But, uh, you know, it was, it was hard on the family. I'm not going to lie that, that, Having having a wife and a child and taking that kind of a risk was was really tough, and it was hard on it wasn't just hard on me. It, it, overall, it was all you know. It was a lot of stress, and it got it got put on them too. So, I'm glad they let me do it. I think if you interview my wife, she would tell you that it's the only startup I'm letting Jamie do. Yeah. Um, so when did you start? You you had started conversations with investors, and all of them were saying no. At what point did they start writing checks into the company? So this, this is a pretty cool, interesting story. I can say it's cool because uh, it's over now. But uh, so it started with uh, our first investor was Joe Ivy. Joe was great, and Joe, um, Joe, I met Joe uh, at the EC, and and he said, you know, Jamie, I don't really understand your technology, but man, you are passionate about it, and uh, I have a feeling you're going to figure out how to make some money. And so, you know, Joe, Joe wrote a, uh, our first seed check, and that was awesome. I was like, oh, my God, I collected some money. You know, it's a convertible note. It's a convertible equity note, uh, which even back in, you know, 20, gosh, that was 2013, you know, people are like, convertible equity notes in the Southeast. Ooh, man, you're awfully liberal here. Um, but uh, Joe did it, and that was awesome. And so I started, you know, looking at collecting more checks. And so 
what, uh, after our, I built that MVP, I met with a venture capitalist in the area. And uh, he had had his eye on it the whole time. And I showed him the MVP and he said, okay, you're ready. And he said, that's um, what we're going to do. Here's a half million dollar term sheet. I think we're ready to, to actually build a business. And he said, uh, but, you know, you need some adult supervision. So uh, I'm going to uh, I'm need to staff you with somebody here. I, I, I think it's too risky with just you. By the way, fair advice, right? We typically see, you, you typically have seen companies that have more than one co-founder, right? Uh, it's good to have a compliment. So I got my half million dollar term sheet and, you know, toasting, toasting champagne. I'm like, this is great. It's awesome. I got a term sheet. Yeah, well, that didn't work out so well. So uh, the uh, placement of another individual with me uh, was, was, a bad, was a bad fit. Wasn't a good marriage. And uh, I was given the choice of uh, continuing an extremely toxic relationship or uh, cutting ties. And the VC, he's, he, was pretty, uh, he was pretty black and white. He said, you either use my person or it's, it's over. I'm pulling the term sheet. And so I uh, had a few not pleasant words and said, you know, better to die now than to drag this out for several years. I said, so... Uh, you know, fired the guy, and uh, VC immediately pulled the term sheet. And uh, I remember, I will never forget, I sat with my uh, head in my hands in my dining room, and I told my wife, and I said, this is it. You know, I've got, I got a toxic person in the company, and I got a VC saying I have to use this person. And I said, it is, it is going to die. And so with head in hands, I said, I, I got to, I got to fire the guy. And um, so the, the, the term sheet got pulled. Got a nice little email blast that went out that uh, wasn't didn't look too good on me. And I think the assumption around town was that we were dead. Now, here's the funny thing. So uh, with Joe, Joe Ivey, when I got the term sheet, Joe, he doubled his investment. He was really excited about this term sheet. So I called Joe. I said, Joe, I, man, I got to... I gotta, I gotta make a hard choice here. I gotta fire this guy that that this 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 VC wants to put in. And I said, um, you know, if I don't do it now, it's just gonna all go go south fast. And and I said, uh, but if I fire the guy, he's gonna pull the term sheet. So I know you just put put your money in because I got this term sheet. So I'm gonna give you everything I got that you put in back if you want it. And I really hope Joe was gonna go. Oh man, no, that's a great call, dude. Yeah, no, go for it. No, keep the money. Joe said, okay, I'll take my money back. And uh, so that left me with $121 in the bank account. That was all I had left. And I had a nice little scathing email that went out to a bunch of angel investors around town. I think most people assumed I was dead. I had one more bullet left in the chamber. And uh, so this was about, we're talking about October 2013. And I had been talking with a... uh, uh, a younger software architect named David Solpe, and he was working for another company, another startup in town. And uh, I told David, I gave him the best sales pitch ever. I said, all right, I can't pay you anything. You should quit your job where you're making good money. Come to work with me and be my co-founder where I'll pay you nothing and we can maybe change the world. What do you say? So, 
for some reason, the dude said, sounds great. <laughs> and, uh, and he did. And so David, uh, came to, he, he filled in the gaps. I didn't, I did not understand how to, you know, spin up scalable web servers. Um, I did not understand, uh, how to build, uh, an architecture based on AWS to create a, an infrastructure that, uh, would, would serve the needs of a startup today and, and a scaled startup 10 years from now, right? This was what he was a specialist in. And uh, he was a wonderful complement to what I was bringing to the table. So I had built some front-end application, a couple of applications, and he paired it up with the back-end architecture. And for four months, we worked no money, but we made the tech way better. And that's about the time Phil Schmerling started to look at initial state and you saw we had real tech at this point. And we brought in another co-founder uh, who was wanted to invest, but he wanted to do sales. That was uh, Raymond Jacobs. And Raymond was interested in investing and he was also interested in being part of business development. And in February, it all came together. And we ended up raising half a million dollars, including an investment from InCrowd. And we pulled that out of our rear end because that was not supposed to happen. Uh, but I went from head in my hands in my dining room to half a million dollars in four months. And it was improbable, but uh, we kind of willed it to be so. So let's talk about that process of, of raising the 500000 uh, You know, you had an outside investor, somebody like me who'd known you for a long time. So for me, it was a relationship thing. I knew you. I saw great tech. It was a little easier for me. Uh, you've got, oh, did, did Raymond bring in the rest of that money? And I think it came from a consortium of angels, not just Raymond himself. Yeah, we had a, at the time I thought it was kind of an atypical way of raising money. Um, when you go off and you read all, if you read all the books, especially back in 2013, the way the game was played was you got VCs to give you seed money. VCs were spreading around seed money like crazy, insanely promiscuous with, here's a million, here's two million, just give us right of first refusal and we're in. And I couldn't get them to bite. And so I was like, how am I going to do this? So what I ended up doing was I ended up pulling together a bunch of angels. So Raymond was really helpful there. He had a pretty good-sized network of uh, friends and business associates that were looking for uh, startup opportunities that were high risk but, you know, unlimited ceiling. And um, about 70% of our first, uh, that, that sort of initial seed money came from Raymond's uh part of the network. And then I started building my own network for the other 30%. And, um, and then I ended up meeting Chris Heffley, who was the founder and CEO of LeanKit, somewhere in the middle of this process. And I learned that this is exactly what Chris had done for LeanKit as well. I was like, okay, okay, so this, I don't feel bad now. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I've, I discovered how to raise money in 2013, uh, 2014, uh, Nashville, and it was building an angel network. And so I think I had that first, uh, I raised half a million, then I followed on another half a million just a few months later. I think we had about 21 angels to do that, and almost every one of them were in the, uh, in the Nashville area. How, ma how many did you pitch in total? What was your hit rate in a sense? Did you pitch 100 investors in 21 road checks? And what were some of the reactions and uh, maybe some of the, the hardships of raising for people who maybe aren't as experienced as investors. Yeah, so thick skin, you got to get it. Uh, pitched a lot. Um, I probably pitched to 
ballpark 100 to 150 angels, maybe more. You know, some of these meetings I would get into, there would be 10. Um, one of the meetings I pitched to maybe 50 angels in one one room, which, by the way, I mean, that's gold. That's what people are looking for, looking for the opportunity. A lot of weird comments and questions, and I learned, I learned after a little while that I was vetting these investors as much as they were vetting me. And I was trying to figure out, you know, is this a low-risk, low-reward-seeking investor? Somebody who mostly invests in mutual funds but is just kind of dabbling in startups? And uh, I would just run from them. Uh, the worst were, uh, you know, I, I want high return but low risk. Uh, those were delusional. And unfortunately, that was the majority of who I was talking to. And I learned to key in on one statement. When an investor told me they were afraid to lose their money, then I realized I would tell them, hey, this isn't for you. And I started being really, really open and honest. And I, and I would tell investors, this is very high risk, but it has no ceiling. If you don't want to tolerate losing your money, you don't want to invest in us. And I think that that transparency went a long way with a lot of my investors who appreciated how I was setting up those expectations. I'll never forget, I pitched in this room um, full of investors. This was uh, the next round of funding where I raised $2 million. And uh, Jerry McCamey was our uh, board member, and uh, he kind of led our second round of funding. And he asked me a question in this meeting in front of everybody. He said, Jamie, tell all the investors the kind of returns that they can expect if they invest in you. And I looked at Jerry kind of sideways and I said, I told the room, I said, I'm not going to promise any return. Guys, this is this is high risk. You know, I said, if you're afraid you're losing your money, there's no way you want to you invest in me. I said, but I, I can tell you this, there's no ceiling. But but this isn't for the faint of heart. I remember on the front row was a, a guy who ended up writing me a $250,000 check. He just looked at me and smiled and he mouthed, good answer. <laughs> So you raised the five hundred thousand from angels, from uh, from inexperienced investors. What did you do with that money? Where where did that get you? And how did that set up future rounds? And was the next round the two million, or were there raises in between? Uh, what what was the next stage of fundraising for you? Yeah. So the plan that we had in place um, was, and I'll and I'll say that that every business is unique and every path to success is unique. So you 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 can't. There isn't a playbook of how to make a startup worth a jillion dollars. You know, it just doesn't exist. There's lessons learned, but your path is unique. For our path is we were playing on the cutting edge of a lot of new technology. And so what we needed to do is we needed to recruit uh, and hire elite development talent to push the bounds of what was happening in the software as a service world. Uh, Specifically around uh, the Internet of Things, data streaming, um, we were a data company data analytics, data visualization, data streaming. Uh, we were creating uh, infrastructure and scalability that was really pushing what uh, companies were able to do. So for us, we were basically not raising money to build a sales team. We were raising money to acquire more developers and more technology to set up a future round for a sales team. So the first million was all about development. Every bit of that was about development. 
And so that was, I called that kind of our pre-seed round in the end. It was just the initial funding. But here's the thing. We actually, we never stopped raising money. I, I basically did a rolling round the whole time. I changed the valuation. Uh, I changed, but I, and I kind of kept with uh, a convertible equity note. Uh, but after the one million, we did convert those investors to uh, a. We did a preferred series seed round. So uh, that round closed. It, 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 we were a Delaware C Corp. That was exactly what you did back in 2013, 2012. We had preferred stock class. We converted those investors to preferred, uh, and that was what InCrowd was. InCrowd was preferred uh, uh, preferred stock. Um, and then after that converted, then we opened up another rolling round where we just started raising more money again. It, it, tended, it tended to come in t- big chunks. Most of the $2 million came in all at once, uh, which was our uh, other round raise. Uh, but even that initial seed, you know, we, we raised 500000 in February. We raised the other 500000 kind of like nine months later. Uh, but those checks did kind of come in ways. But, you know, occasionally you would get a 50, 50K check or 25K check one month and nothing the next month. And then there's 300K the next month. So that, that was, at the time, I still think it, it was atypical. But I started realizing that in the South, this was the only way I could do it because if if I were just looking for VC money, it wasn't going to happen. And you never brought in an institutional partner in a sense. This was the, the full amount you raised. What was the total over the life of the business? About two and a half million? Three million. Three million? Three million. Did any of that come from institutional money? Or was it all angels? And how many investors did you end up with on the cap table? So I believe I had 44 investors on the cap table. None of it was institutional money. There was one VC firm, but it really was just friend. It was it was friends of friends, and that was just their financial vehicle. We had no traditional VCs in there uh, at all. It was all angels. Did you make attempts to talk to them, or did it just so happen you got acquired before you even had the opportunity to, to do that maybe $10 million round, which maybe would have been the next one after raising the, the $3 million? So early on, during that, that first million raise, I talked to a lot of VCs. Um, around the Southeast, there weren't, there's, there weren't and still aren't enough, and really that many. And most of the ones in the area were focused on healthcare, uh, definitely focused more on later stage and they were investing in, their thesis revolved around uh, revenue generation. And we were, you know, really, at the acquisition, we were a pure technology play. You know, we never built a sales team. And uh, it was so atypical in Nashville that uh, the VCs around here weren't interested and didn't give us a lot of great advice on where to go. So I started talking to outside investors. Um, you know, you look at, you know, Founders Fund and Foundry Group and, uh, and Dries and Horowitz and, you know, all of these, this, they're investing in companies like us. And so I started talking with them as much as I could. And the, the problem was that we weren't there. And, um, and so, you know, they were like, we're not, we're not saying no, we're just saying not right now. And, um, and I think that, you know, we were trying to set up a, a more like a $10 million round raise uh, but we needed more traction to get that. And, um, and I knew I wasn't going to get it with the first million, so I needed to raise more in the Southeast. 
before I could do that. So what the plan was, the plan was raise that first million, get traction, raise another, say, one to three million. It ended up being another two million, so a total of three. Uh, Keep that within Angels. And then from that, actually raise a big boy Series A round, five to ten million. And that was probably going to come from the outside. You had 44 angel investors on your cap table. One question I like to ask is, was it a pain to have? Was it a pain to deal with 44 people? Were they helpful in some situations? Were they a pain in some situations? What was the experience like for you for having such a large number of investors on your cap table? So it, it wasn't awful. Um, it sounds miserable to have to deal with 44 investors, but the one thing that we did a good job of is over time we got really good at selecting our investors with, you know, kind of kind of in a smart way, but also managing expectations. Uh, so I would always send out a quarterly update, uh, tell them where we we're at, what we we're doing. Uh, that quarterly update went a long way. Um, it, it, it answered most questions. If I ever missed that quarterly update, I would get about 44 emails saying, hey, what's going on? I had a few needy ones um, that, that uh, really, uh, you know, I had, I had to spend more time with. But it, it wasn't awful but I will tell you, it did consume quite a bit of time, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't very long into initial state with recruiting that uh, I stopped writing all code because one, I wasn't nearly as good at it as the people we were recruiting, and two, they couldn't rely on me because occasionally I get pulled off on uh, on some lunch with an angel investor who maybe was nervous or uh, really just just want to know what was going on in detail. So I'd say it wasn't bad, not, not as bad as it sounded, but it could have been miserable had we selected different investors. Uh, so give a good example. Uh, one investor that uh, that would ask me to come speak uh, at his class once a year was, uh, ended up being Joe Ivey. And so I, I never told you the rest of that story, but uh, uh, when we bounced back and raised our half million dollars, Joe was one of the happiest uh, investors of them all, you know, and he gladly put all his money back in and he said, you know, man, you know, you, you, uh, really, really admire the way you handled that. You know, you, you're the only person that ever gave me my money back and was honest. And he, uh, so he ended up investing again and, uh, he had me come talk to his class at Lipscomb every year and tell that story about, uh, you know, having to make a really hard decision and, uh, but, but having the, uh, foresight to, you know, manage that manage that relationship the right way. I think I think it would have been easy for me to have said, "Man, I got I got to keep Joe's money. I got to keep Joe's money because if I don't, I'm going to die." But but I think I realized that if I wasn't really open with Joe, then the relationship would go south. And and I'll tell you, having bad investor relations is a good way to make your life miserable. And um, and I think I, I did a good job with Joe um, of, of being upfront and honest with them. And so Joe ended up being you know, great throughout the process. Especially in a small town like Nashville where work gets around really quickly. And I think it's pretty common uh, in was like this for investors to say, okay, you're telling me you need 500000 to get to the next stage for your business. Well, if I put in 100000 I want to see you raise the other four before I get it. Because if I give you my hundred, you're going to spend it and it's going to be gone. And you're going to be in a mad rush to try and get the other 400. So I, I'm kind of the same way. Like I wouldn't necessarily write a check in a company that I think 
needs 500,000 to succeed and only has two or 300 of it lined up. And we've had to do that several times because we did get burned on an investment early. Uh, so let's go back to some advice for the, the startups listening to this podcast. You raised money from 44 angel investors. What are some pieces of advice that you have for them as you were getting that first 500,000 in and then as things started to progress, how you got the rest of the money in? What advice do you have for founders at that stage? So this is advice that I heard, but I didn't hear it. I didn't want to listen to it. So when you're, when you're trying to raise money, you're, you're almost in kind of a desperation phase. And people kept saying, listen, be really careful with the investors that you choose because if you choose a bad investor, it's going to be terrible. And, um, and I'll tell you, Nashville is loaded with bad money. There's a lot of investors that will drive you crazy. Um, there are investors that will try to take advantage of you. Uh, there are investors that will just annoy you. There are investors that will kill your company. And I think there was a lot of luck involved early on where even when I was really desperate, I, I didn't have an opportunity to take some of that bad money. I definitely had a lot of opportunity to take bad money when I wasn't desperate and I had my wits about me to not do that. But my first advice is you are interviewing your investor as much as your investors interviewing you. Be so careful who you choose. So let me give you an example of what it's like to have a bad investor. So 44 investors. I think laws of probability will tell you that I did not have 44 great investors for me. I had, uh, I had one investor who loved to email me frequently and just say, you're going to die. Yeah, you're, you're just going to go out of business. And I would email back, well, okay, well, I mean, how can you help? Oh, no, I can't help you. You're just going to go out of business. You're doing a terrible job. And that was so stressful. You know, you, 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 you can give the advice, I'll just let it roll off. But you get that email, it's, it's just like a punch in the gut. You're working on something and you get the, no, you're going to run out of money. So, you know, I would say that uh, that investor wasn't a good investor for us. And, uh, of course, I'll never use that investor again. If you're going to raise money like I did and you're going to go for four, through 44 people, uh, you are going to have to manage 44 people that uh, won't all be what you hope them to be. But that's my top advice on raising money in the South is, uh, is understand your investors, but also uh, realize that, the way you raise money in the Southeast is is not necessarily what you see in movies and what you read about on the internet in terms of the Bay Area and New York. Um, you got to understand how the game is played. The game is played differently in different areas, and you can't go and change the game just because you think you can. Um, we we played the game the way it needed to be played to raise money, and it was that way. But uh, uh, in a lot of ways, I, w- I was lucky in how I managed those 44 angels. Yeah, and that's the point of this podcast is how do you play the game in the South? Because it's very different. Did you have expectations of what it was going to be like when you first started the company? Did you think, oh, it's going to be just like Silicon Valley. I go find somebody who invests, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's there's pre-seed, there's pre-pre-seed, there's, I've heard soil. Somebody told me something about soil that's even pre-pre-pre-pre-seed. <laughs> you know, they have... They have a, a, a they have a, a venture capital firm for every round that you could possibly think out of, of in Silicon Valley. But here, if you don't have a million dollars in annual recurring revenue and or you're not in healthcare, good luck. Was that your expectation? Did you think it was going to be like Silicon Valley and you just learned along the way that it wasn't? Or did you kind of know there was going to be a hard, a hard slog from the beginning? So I definitely didn't know exactly 
how it's going to go down. And I, and I definitely envisioned it to be a lot more like Silicon Valley. And uh, I envisioned it to be more like, you know, the social network, the Facebook story than I did, the slog that it was. Um, There's a lot of uh, beautification of the process in, uh, in books and in movies and TV shows. And the reality is it's a slog. So I thought it would be different. I thought it would feel different. And I really thought it would be more like a Silicon Valley. I'd catch a VC and a VC would uh, help us blow up. But it didn't happen that way. And, you know, that was the other thing is I knew I had to be really reactive and I had to roll with the punches. So uh, when I saw that, you know, it wasn't going to be that way, I didn't give up. You know, I just I figured out how to how to adapt to that situation. And, you know, it, it turned out it turned out really well. But uh, no, man, it was completely different than I thought it would be. It didn't that didn't happen. At, I didn't want 44 investors initially. I thought I have like five or six, <laughs> but, but it, it was the way it had to be. And, uh, and I wasn't super rigid in that process, which I think would have, would have killed things. I, I think there were an infinite number of things that I could have done that would have killed it. Uh, but that w- that's definitely one of them. And I, I think there are some, some common themes that we're starting to hear with all of our podcast guests. You know, one, I think setting expectations for investors is very important early on, letting them know this is not a stock market investment. This is a high-risk investment. Don't risk money you can't afford to lose. Um, and then some common things we're um, starting to hear. Um, investors getting giving term sheets, and this is coming from mostly institutional investors from what I've been hearing, that they're writing term sheets and then walking away later for, for whatever reason they decide. Um, so wait, like, don't celebrate. Don't start spending money until that check is cleared the bank, I think is maybe an important takeaway. Um, and then a lot of institutional investors taking meetings with institutional investors, they never tell you no. I, I hear entrepreneurs all the time coming back to me like, oh, I talked to this VC and they love what I'm doing. They're going to write us a check when we hit a million ARR or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to, to stay composed and say, well, yeah, that's just because they don't want to miss the opportunity if you do end up blowing up into something big. But uh, people get really excited about what they hear from, especially Silicon Valley. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, and then... A lot of entrepreneurs are told, like, to only take money from people who understand what you're doing, who will be good investors for you. But in some cases, when you need the money, you just got to take the money. Um, so uh, I guess in closing, um, you know, you, we, you had an exit with initial state of, what, two, or two years ago, give or take? About a year and a half ago, yeah. So, you know, the outcome was great. Uh, things ended up working out. Um, what are maybe some words of wisdom in a, in a whole and closing that you can leave with some of our, our listeners? Words of wisdom on, on raising capital and, and outside the coast. Well, I don't know that I have any words of wisdom, so I wouldn't go that far. But uh, I'll tell you, one thing you mentioned that uh, really resonated with me and the experience that we hadn't talked about was the number of uh, VCs that will reach out to you. Uh, and they'll send you emails and say, hey... You know, I found an initial state. I'm really interested. Uh, would you like to hop on the phone and, and, and tell us what you're doing? And, uh, and I did that. Like everybody, everybody does that. Everybody's oh my goodness, I've got cue ball capital calling me. I've got, oh, I got this guy from injuries and calling me. This is awesome. And, uh, and I would, I would, you know, even tell the team, like, I got this meeting with this high power VC. He's famous. It's going to be great. You know, of course I never did. I actually had some like, you know, junior associate that I was talking to. And I realized that there was no winning that game that they were, um, I could never could get to a decision maker that the people I was pitching to at these VCs, they weren't decision makers in general. They were trying to make some deal flow and they never, they rarely ever got deal flow all the way through to the end. And so I, I realized that uh, 
it was the same lesson. Do you remember the the, the movie War Games, Matthew Broderick, a long time ago? The the computer is it's like playing uh, whatever. You know, there's 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 no there's there's no it's like playing tic tac toe. That was the game, right? Uh, two people can play, and there's never a winner, right? So the only way to win the game is to not play. So the only way to win the game of VCs reaching out to you. Uh, cold on emails and saying, hey, you should pitch to us, is to not play that game. It is a waste of time. Uh, so that that one really, really resonated with me. Um, and I figured that out. It started saving me a lot of time. Uh, it was only through warm intros. Uh, VCs are not going to invest in you without a warm intro. You get a warm intro, it's worth your time, potentially. Uh, but even with the angels and everything else, warm intros are, are everything. Uh, in terms of that, that 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 raising money game, it's a hard game to play. It's stressful. It will take a toll on you. Uh, if if you don't have to raise money, don't. Do not raise money because you think it's glorious. Do not. Oh my God, I got a million dollar check. I we celebrating right. That that is uh, that is not the point of the game. That is that is short lived because when you take that million dollars, you have a million dollars of expectations to live up to, and they expect a return on that investment. They want to see that you're working on it. That is not the end game too much celebrating of raising money. But don't listen to absolute advice either. People will tell you, you should raise money. You shouldn't raise money. Every company's different. Every path is unique. You, you, your, your company's not going to follow the same path as, uh, as Facebook or whatever. You, know, you, you're, you're, you don't have to be a healthcare services business in Nashville. You do not have to be initial state to succeed. right? You will, you will have your own path. For us... Our path, it, it had to be fundraising because we were building a technology company and it was a technology play. And ultimately, it was a technology acquisition. It kind of required fundraising. I didn't want to do it, but I needed to. But if you're building a services business that doesn't require raising money, don't feel like you have to. Lord, you're going to hate it if you have to. So, Yeah, and... Uh... You know, when I learned when I started my business, I, I had an expectation that I would get either good advice or bad advice. What I wasn't expecting is that I would get really good advice that took me to the right. And I had really good advice that took me to the left. And I was just like, well, what, what do I do? So you're going to get great advice from a lot of different people. And the hardest part about being an entrepreneur is in the end, the decision's on you. You have to be the one that makes the decision what's right for you personally and then what's right for your business. So I, I think that's a, a great point. Um, well, Jamie, I really want to thank you for your time, for coming in. It's a great story. I've known you for a long time. always enjoyed our chats, and, uh, and I really appreciate your coming on. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to the Scarps in the Studio podcast. We will catch you next time. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Phil. Thank you again for listening to the latest episode of Startups in the Studio. If you'd like to dig in deeper into this episode or other episodes, you can visit our website, startupsinthestudio.com, to find show notes and links we found to be relevant based on these interviews. Of course, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Give us a high rating and a positive review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please feel free to share Startups in the Studio with anyone you think would enjoy our conversations. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what we can do better, give us some topic or interview ideas, or just send us a note and say hello. You can reach me at phil, P-H-I-L, at startupsinthestudio.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, and go out there and raise some money.